0: Welcome to the Brother, Brother, Brother podcast. I'm your host, Wyndham Lewis, and today I'm talking to Dave Wedge. Dave's a New York Times bestselling author, journalist, and award-winning former reporter for the Boston Herald. His books, with his co-author Casey Sherman, include Boston Strong, Hunting Whitey, and his most recent, with Sherman and James Patterson, is called The Last Days of John Lennon. Today, Dave and I are going to delve into... The Last Days of John Lennon. Currently number four on the New York Times bestseller list and a great read. I highly, highly recommend it. Here's Dave. <laughs> Dave, welcome to Brother, Brother, Brother.
1: Sure, thank you for having me. I appreciate it.
0: Yeah, let's, uh, I was just going to jump in and start talking about your new book, The Last Days of John Lennon, which uh, I absolutely loved and, and highly recommend. But uh, it's kind of a, a, a um, I don't know, I guess pleasingly misleading title because it's a pretty comprehensive story of John Lennon's life.
1: It is, it is. It is so. So the book, well, first of all, thanks for reading it. I appreciate that. Um, you know, it's, it's always nice when I'm doing these interviews and, and the people have have actually read the material, right? And I can't hold it against those that don't because we're all busy, but um, that's awesome, so thank you. Um, you know, the book, so Casey and I are true crime guys. You know, we, we come from journalism backgrounds, and, you know, Patterson writes what he writes. You know, he's, he's the biggest author in the world, and he writes a bunch of different stuff, but he's primarily you know, writes fiction and novels, you know, and so when we got together, um, you know, we had this idea to, to write about, you know, kind of a true crime story about the last days of John Lennon, and as we started writing the book, we realized, you know, that Chapman's story really isn't the story, it's really John Lennon who he was, and, and that incredible journey he took with the Beatles and post-Beatles and, you know, some of the best stuff, I think, um, you know, about, about the whole story is really those last days before he did collide with, with Mark David Chapman, you know, he was just, it's, it's just very tragic. He was, he was really just coming out of a kind of self-imposed um, seclusion, you know, he was out of the public eye for a few years and, and he was just, you know, double fantasy had just come out. He was just looking back to get into the public eye again and, and start his next journey of music and, and his life was cut short and
0: yeah, it's it's interesting because you know, I, I I recognize the the you know, sort of uh you know, it's it's interspersed the way the book is laid out. It's it's the Mark David Chapman uh material is interspersed with a, basically a, like I said a comprehensive history of John Lennon's life. fact is, these guys really only, only intersected for about, you know, 10 minutes one day. It's uh I mean that's the sad truth of it and Mark David yeah. Chapman is is um you know, so, you know, the way it's segregated into those two very different stories, um, you know, how did you find yourself doing the research on both?
1: So, because there was three of us, it, it makes it easier, and Casey and I do this when we do our books together, we kind of divide and conquer. So, you know, for, for this particular book, I was more the Chapman guy, I focused heavily on Chapman's story. Casey dug into, you know, Lennon's past, and he got some great stuff with John Lennon, and his history, and then obviously Patterson um, is the maestro that, you know, we, we feed everything into him and work together to shape the narrative. Um, you know, for me and Casey, you know, we, we went down to New York, and uh, we went to the courthouse in Lower Manhattan, the criminal court, and um, we pulled those case files that had never, they hadn't been pulled in 20 years. They had to, we had to order them, and they had to get them from up in um, Albany and have them brought down. You know, so they you know they called us a few months later, they were like, hey, you your boxes are here. So we get down there, you know, Case and I sat in that courthouse and went through those files um, with a fine-tooth comb. And, and it was really amazing to, to read through those, those case files and, and see the history there. You know, John Lennon's autopsy report, you know, uh, the arrest report from Mark David Chapman. You know, the officers, the first officers who encountered them, their reports of, of what he said, how he appeared. You know all that stuff, and and then obviously all the psych, psychiatric evaluations. And there was there was several of them. I, I think eight by my count. Um, so it was um, it was a real exciting book to to work on, and to get to work with someone like Patterson was was incredible. I mean the guys the guys the GOAT, you know, He's the I, in the
0: world. I really I read uh, you know I read each of your bios, and um, his uh, starts with the sentence: James Patterson is the best-selling author in the world um so yeah, he
1: sold over 700 million books so you know he's he's a, he's a beast and uh, and he you know he's just
0: he knows a good story so. that's yeah that's a pretty definitive sentence i like it um so <laughs> the uh one of the things that i'm um, so the the Chapman stuff you know which is obviously sounds like it was your focus it, you know it does it's it isn't you know it is a narrative there's an internal uh sort of monologue or in his case probably dialogue um and it is, uh, but it, I imagine you pulled a lot of that from Psyche uh-huh.
1: Um Yeah, a lot, a lot came from that. He interviews, uh, you know, interviews that he's given over the years. You mm-hmm. know, he spoke a lot to the press until recent years. He also, you know, we had all his parole, um, all his parole hearing transcripts. We read through all of those. There was, I think there's been six of them. Um, there's volumes and volumes of, of material on Mark David Chapman. Um, and his wife you know his wife has done a lot she still is out there she's a member of of some uh, church um, in Hawaii and uh, she gets up every Sunday and I don't know if it's every Sunday but she gets up regularly and and, you know speaks and gives sermons and she talks about him a lot some of that stuff is available out there to find interesting you know we we, we just kind of look for every single piece of information we could look at about his life and we spoke to folks from his past and um
0: you know, it was it was pretty incredible. Yeah, I have to say it. It, it sort of, you know, it read. Uh, I couldn't help thinking, like when I was reading it, that it, it reads very much like a cross between King of Comedy and Taxi Driver. Ah,
1: uh, I I guess that's high praise. Thank you, I appreciate that. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's well, we, we hope we hope we make a movie yeah. uh, of that of
0: that level. But I, I also I was really interested too. I think you know you hit on it a, a few minutes ago. The late era John Lennon. I mean, I think of double when I think of double fantasy, and I think you're you know close to the same age as me. um, You know, I think of that double fantasy, and automatically, it's it's more of a milepost than an album. It's sort of you know it marked the assassination of John Lennon. Where were you when John Lennon was killed, and do you you know what are your recollections?
1: Yeah, so so I, I think I, I looked you up. I, I think I'm a year younger than you. I was born in 1970. Fuck so I was you. Ten years old, <laughs> and um, I was at home with my parents, and I, I remember. Uh, I'm trying. I, I believe I saw it on the news when my dad came down and told me because I was a Beatles fanatic at that age. I was just getting into you know music. I loved the Beatles. I loved the Doors. My you know I was all, you know just out of gear like the Stones and the Who and all that. But the Beatles were like. My obsession. I had all you know. I had the John Lennon at the white piano. I had that that poster on my wall, you know. And I've just always been a music guy from a from a young age. And um, you know, I I mean, it was you know, it was really the first time in my life that I can remember that I was really sad about a world event that I really had no personal connection to. Mm. You know, now in this day and age, it sounds ridiculous to say because that happens every day, but. I kind of think about, um, that time and, you know, no, no cable, no cell phones, no internet, none of that. So when these things happened, you kind of sat with it for a, a long time, you yeah. know, and, and you, people talked about it and you discussed it and thought about it and, you know, you really felt it, you know, and, and I, I, you know, I felt the same way when, when Ronald Reagan was shot and you know, that was a shocking moment in, in my life, you know, and, um, but now it's like, you know, every hour there's something more shocking than the last on Twitter. We never get a chance to even stop and feel anything
0: anymore. But it also had that sort of grassroots feeling because there was, you know, I mean, people just didn't know what to do. So they, you know, yeah. um, they started, you know, they gathered at, uh, at the Dakota and they gathered in yeah. Central Park and, and they just didn't know what to do with their grief. People were gathering, singing. I remember that. news uh, And I, you know, I had bought Double Fantasy that I think that day maybe yeah. um, because it was you know it was that was had just
1: well, it was a huge record it was a hugely anticipated record I mean people were like John Lennon's new soul well, but starting over was on the radio already yeah you know and it was a it was a massive massive hit yeah you know, it, I, I guess you know for me the, the real I know anytime someone loses their life it's tragic but I think there was an extra layer of tragedy here because John Lennon was about to bring the world to the second act Mm-hmm. And it would have been, I think, based on double fantasy, would have been absolutely incredible. And, you know, had he lived to the age that Paul McCartney and Ringo are now, you know, who knows how much great music he, you know, that, that Chapman robbed the world of.
0: Yeah, and, and great stuff. I, I also, you know, it's it's funny because, you know, rock and roll was, was you know, aging in real time at that point, and there was no such thing as a 40-year-old rock star. Yeah. And, right. and, and so you're you're looking at, you know, and I, that was what I was brought back to in reading this book, is, you know, you're sort of... He had disappeared from 35 to 40, essentially. He, you know, did, did the lost weekend thing, did the full-time fathering thing, and then this was his comeback, but it was very, you know, it was a lot of trepidation because who comes back at 40? Yeah. And yeah, it was, it was certainly a... Um... Going
1: to be a new new journey for him, and you know they, again based on that album, you know, and then uh, with the one that you
0: know the outtakes Milk and Honey that came out. Right. some Good stuff on that. that. I'm not super psyched about that one, but um, you know there was a lot of he had a lot left in the tank. Yeah, I mean, it's funny too. You know, there's a you know I too am, am a Beatles obsessive, so you know any of the anecdotal stuff that I didn't know is always, you know, fun for me to read. I, I, uh, a couple things. One was a, a quote uh, from McCartney, which uh, I will paraphrase rather than quote, but um, when they were joking, when they were making the White Album and Yoko started coming to the studio all the time, and Paul McCartney jokes, yeah, 50 years from now, we're all going to look back and say the Beatles broke up because Yoko sat on an amp, um, which I thought was a great pull. And um, But yeah, the, I, I did... Right I did think that this book um, dealt with their relationship in a very sensitive, you know, sort of tender way that where you kind of understood it, where she's always been sort of vilified and and outcast, but you got the, I mean, I think you guys did a great job of of bringing that to life, his family life.
1: No, I I appreciate it. I mean, look, the fact is, you know, people can think what they want about go Yoko but John loved her unconditionally and she loved him unconditionally. And, and I think you still see that today where, you know, she still is uh, mourning her husband, you know. And, and um, you know, I, I think that, uh, you know, the whole Lost Weekend thing was, was their you know, their, their low point. But after that, I mean, he really, I think he struggled with, with um, growing up, yeah. you know, like a lot of men do, especially <clears throat> men in their 30s, you know, it's, you know where, where, where we're almost mourning that our 20s are over and we're like kind of confused our 30s like oh i'm a grown-up now what do i do and then all of a sudden you're 40 mm-hmm. and i think he was you know he he struggled with that like a lot of men do and i think he decided in his 30s that it was time to really you know raise his kids and, and you know he didn't he didn't really raise julian um you know like he did sean and, and that's unfortunate and i think you know there's been a lot of friction there over the years and that's been widely discussed but I think the fact is is that he loved he loved both of those boys equally, and he just happened to be more present for Sean because of the circumstances in his life, and I think that brought him and Yoko closer together, um, in those final years.
0: Yeah, I think. Um, yeah, there, I think another thing, you know, emotional touch point. I think was the the you know Julian and Kyoko, um, Yoko's uh, son from her second marriage. I mean, daughter from her second marriage. I think they were. You know, they both sort of stood out as, as, as um, you know, sad figures and, and you know, the, the otherwise glamorous life of these two, you know, these two people. Um,
1: yeah, I think it's, it's easy for people to judge, though. You know, it's like, you know, when people are celebrities, everyone loves to say how they should live their life, but, you know, unless you're that person, you don't know what they're doing, you know? You don't know what's going on. And you don't know the private
0: moments. Yeah, I, I do. I have been doing a lot of research lately on on Liz Taylor and Richard Burton, and realizing that you know this is kind of the dawn of celebrity. I mean, the Beatles break up; they're not thirty yet. I mean, the, 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 that's a right. that's an insane amount of attention and sort of uncharted territory. Um, so
1: to seven seven years, you know, really seven years is all they were together. Look at how much they did,
0: you know? Yeah, I always love to to do that backward thing where you say, Okay, if the Beatles broke up today they would have formed in two thousand thirteen. You know, it's a it's pretty right. freaky. I mean that's a lot of right. history to jam into to seven years. But it, you know, Absolutely. I I liked too the way that and I mean I've I've seen documentation of this before, but it, it was nice to revisit the sort of brotherhood that the Beatles had um, post breakup. Sure. You know, I I don't know what um, you know the uh, the the fact that Ringo sort of you know played on everybody's sessions still and and that um, yeah. go ahead.
1: Yeah, no, I think I think you know they, they had a, a strange relationship after the Beatles broke up. You know, obviously there was a lot of hurt there. I think, um, you know, and, and I think there was some you know there's some competitive juices flowing as well. You know, it's it's not unlike modern days when, when bands break up and they go and do solo projects like everybody wants to outsell and outshine the other one. I, I think that a lot of people like to think the Beatles were above that but they weren't. You know, there was there was competition there and, you know, there was the Paul McCartney would check the and John Lennon would check the, the, the charts, mm-hmm. the, the charts to see where his album was charting versus Paul's and, and, and George's, you know, and um, I don't think they were, you know, rooting for each other's failure, but I think they just wanted to be more successful. And I don't think it was because they wanted to hurt each other or say, Ha ha see I'm the Reese, the Beatles were great. I think it was just for themselves to feel fulfilled, you know, mm-hmm. after that incredible journey they were on. I mean come on, like we just said, seven years, um, you know, best selling band of all time and you know, really changed the course of popular music forever. Um, to come out of that and, and you know in kind of a hurt situation you know it's only natural to want to stand in there on two feet and say see
0: look I'm still standing and I think it was more of that yeah
1: well that said so I- each one of them struggled in their own way you know Paul, Paul and John obviously had a lot more success but then George did with all things I mean, it was a huge huge record you know
0: mm-hmm. oh it's a great one too yeah, um,
1: yeah.
0: but I you know I would forgotten and and you know was uh, very happily reminded I you know when I read this that of you know John Lennon's the com- you know the sort of uh, the com- the complete nature of John Lennon's 70s output, which was very uh, you know very varied. I mean he there are the hits, there are the mind games and the jealous guy and and those great songs, but there's also the the David Peel, you know, the Pope smokes dope and and these sort of frivolous projects that he would put out of, of he and Yoko Howling at the Moon um, you know that how does that rec- you know how does that reconcile with the rest of the catalog as far as you're concerned?
1: Yeah no I, so uh, as, as a Beatles you know kind of nerd like we talked about at the beginning uh, I became very immersed in John Lennon's solo stuff even the really avant garde God stuff I mean some of the screaming stuff with Yoko and all that I, you know, I didn't get into that I didn't like some of the um, some of the stuff that he did with her but you know I always loved John Lennon's um, books you know The Spaniard in the Works Skywriting by Word of Mouth um, you know I, I read those books as a young young kid you know my you know, early teens and I still quote them with my friends to, to these to this day you know they're, they're kind of nonsensical um, cartoonish sort of little short stories but they're they're fascinating and they give you a fascinating um Insight into John Lennon's mind at the time, and whether it's drugs or him just being depressed or whatever. I mean, it's kind of dark, but it, it, it. They honestly, those those two books in particular were pretty big influence on my life at a young age, where it kind of taught me to think in a different way and express myself in different ways. And, um, so I think you know John was a true artist, you know, and and I think you know back to the original point you were talking about. Yoko saw that in him, and he saw that Yoko saw that in him, and he knew that Yoko would support him as an artist, whatever he did, as long as he was a good husband, and and I think that's kind of the way their relationship blossomed as they
0: got older. Yeah, that, that was really cool. I, I actually didn't realize until I read your book that, that those books were performed on stage at, at some point. Yeah, yeah, I mean, he, those books, again, you know, remember, they were, you know, Greenwich Village Art House sort of stuff, you mm-hmm. so know, they were...
1: They were really, um, you know, you know, Yoko Ono um, was really trying to stay relevant in the real art scene, not the pop art scene. You know what I mean? So right. she was going to art galleries of obscure.
0: The of downtown scene, yeah. And,
1: yeah, she was. She was not. You know, it was very common for her to be, um, you know, down in Greenwich Village at some like small opening. You know, regularly she wasn't looking for the for the press all the time. You know.
0: Yeah. No. And. Um, just to, to I, yeah, I always thought it was, um, yeah, her sort of, you know, New York life is very curious. And I didn't actually, I wasn't aware that she had lived there so extensively before they moved back from England.
1: Yeah, so, yeah, so, so one, one uh, interesting side note that, that you may not have picked up, or uh, um, it, it's, there's a witness to the shooting, um, Sean Strub. Yep. And he was, he, he's now a mayor in some upstate um, New York um, con- uh, small town and, uh, or small city. And, and he witnessed the shooting and he actually knew Yoko Ono from from, um, from before, you know, he knew her before the shooting um, hmm. because he, he had some, he did some theater work and he would see her around at the theater. So, um, it, you know, there's a lot of, you know, that Dakota sort of world with, with that sort of um, the folks that lived in that neighborhood, they, a lot of them were were like Greenwich Village art folks, you know. And, um, so she she had led an interesting life, and I think she brought John into that in some ways, because John was like you know Beatles, rock star, private Chats and all that. And I think in some ways she showed him another side of the art world that he probably would have never found without her.
0: Yeah, I think you know it's it's hard to get on a, on that on that smaller scale once you've hit you know once you're so you know you're. Your life is so magnified; it's it's hard to get back in touch with with the you know emerging scene. I also,
1: yeah, and I, I think one, one, just one thought. I mean, you know, to if you think about it, you know, John Lennon, he was caught in that celebrity bubble, but in some ways, she freed him from that because she made him feel comfortable to go to those small art shows and things like that. Yeah, he was mobbed and all that stuff, but um, that's why ultimately, you know, that's why John Lennon was who he was at the end. He was a man of the people. Because he wanted to have a bit of a cloak of anonymity, even though he knew he couldn't. He wanted to be out there among the people and that's ultimately, sadly, what ended his life because yeah. he he didn't travel around with security all the time and you know, a guy like Mark David Chapman that wanted to get near
0: him was able to. Yeah, they there's that story of you know, the in the in the book of the um, the copy of Double Fantasy that that Chapman's carrying and that Lennon graciously in, you know, autographs for him, and then it gets left yeah. at the scene for several days, which is you know hard to imagine. You
1: know, it's it's, it's shocking that he you know he signed the record and didn't shoot him right like then and just waited for him to come back.
0: Yeah, what, what where is the uh, where is that record uh, lie right now?
1: Uh, that's a good question. I I don't know. I would assume it's been evidence. No, oh, okay. But it may it may be in a museum. I, I, that's a good question. I should find that out. No,
0: actually, I think I think you in the, in the at the tail end of the book, I believe, um, he got it. The, the fellow, the doorman, got it back out of evidence. Um, oh, I'm sorry. Yes,
1: yes, that's right. The doorman. That's right. Thank you. Thank
0: you. Yeah, it's, I, 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 I don't imagine the book's as fresh in your mind as it is in mine. <laughs> yeah. Well, the, the doorman is
1: uh, is an interesting guy too because he was a real hero in that whole thing. You know, he um. You know, as, as, as you know, he, he kicked the gun away from Chapman and kind of was the only one there until the cops arrived. So, yeah, um, he's a
0: super interesting guy. And that was the that was another crazy thing is that when Chapman was arrested, he was unarmed and he was just sitting there waiting for the cops. He never ran. Yeah, and, yeah, never ran. And, and you
1: know, and, and um, you know, like I said, the doorman was kind of standing watch over him. And remember that doorman saw John and Yoko every day. He right, was friend. You know, and he. He, uh, you know, he was, he had
0: a hard time with the whole thing. That's
1: brutal. he's lucky he didn't get shot, too, you
0: know? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a brutal story. The, the other interesting thing, you know, given that, and it, obviously this is, you know, the release of the book and everything coincides with the 40th anniversary of this, um, you know, terrible uh, incident, but, um, you know, one of the most famous things that came out of it was that Monday Night Football um, announcement, the Howard Cosell uh, yeah. announcement that John Lennon had been killed, but the the sort of analog chain link that, that brought it to the Monday Night Football booth was a really interesting story. I don't know if you want to re- recount it. It's really cool.
1: Yeah, yeah, so, so the, um, the ABC News, news producer um, was was actually, um, I think it's Alan Weiss, I believe is his name. He got hit by a car on a bike, and um, he was actually at the hospital when Lennon was brought in. So he was trying to get treated for he broke his leg and um, he was kind of waiting there and he didn't know it was Sean Lennon, but he was hearing rumors that someone famous was in there that was shot and he could tell by the activity that there was a big some sort of big situation going on and he uh, basically borrowed a phone and, you know, violated every protocol in the hospital and, and um violated all the rules of privacy was able to confirm that it was John Lennon and caught that news back at GBC and then that's how it got back to Howard Cosella to break the story so it really came from um it was just shit luck you know that the, that the guy happened to be in the hospital yeah shit bad luck I guess um, um, but he was a super interesting guy Casey and I sat with him for a long time at dinner and very very interesting guy he's had an interesting career and um you know obviously that was a Seminal moment for him in his journalism career, but that, that actually kind of jogs my terrible memory. That you know, I believe that's how I found out was because the Patriots were playing the Dolphins that night on Monday Night Football, and the Patriots would never on Monday Night Football because they were terrible back then. But, um, I believe I was watching that game, and that's how I think I was watching it with my dad. That's how we, we are the
0: News. Wow, that's a Yeah, that is that was a uh, it's an iconic moment, and it's uh, you know, the the sort of the you know, the happenstance nature of how it, how that information was delivered to the booth is, is really... A, yeah, a
1: little, little little side note on, on the Patriots back then. Some of your younger listeners won't know any of this because, you know, the Patriots for 20 years have been amazing and they're on Monday Night Football constantly, but back then they, they were on Monday Night Football only maybe once every five or six years, if that, and then ultimately they were... They uh, shut down... Monday night football games at, at, at the old Foxborough Stadium because one night after the Patriots were on Monday night football, they won and they the fans ripped down the goalpost and walked down Route One with <laughs> a and it hit the power lines and electrocuted a guy and the guy died. And uh, after that, they said no more Monday night football than, uh, at
0: at Foxborough Stadium. So a little little side note there. Classic, classic Massachusetts. You got to ban. <laughs> you got to <laughs> you got to ban something if someone gets hurt. You know. Um,
1: yeah, yeah, it's crazy. But, but they, and they were terrible, so it was no no harm, no fault of the NFL. sugar, sure, we don't have to have games anymore. You guys are
0: terrible anyway. Yeah. <laughs> so I that is, um, you know, there's a ton of these like fascinating anecdotal stories in in the book. So again, I highly recommend it. But I do want to ask you, you. A, uh, about a few things outside the book because you are a music nut, and a music writer um, as well, and. Um, I wanted to ask you who is more interesting—an in interview, Bushwick Bill or Billy Bulger?
1: Oh boy, uh, Bushwick Bill by far. <laughs> I mean, Billy Bulger is just so so—you um, know—so guarded, you know, and and he, he didn't get honest at all. But Bushwick Bill was an open book, and that was one of—you know—I I had a few interviews in my career that that really again i'm a nerd you know i'm into this i get into what i get into and we're we're, you
0: know, we're of the same stripe
1: yeah you know what i mean like, like I'm, I, i'd rather interview bush with bill than taylor swift you know what i mean oh hell yes 100 a, a 100 a out of 100 times you know and, um that's just how i am and, and you know he was a super interesting guy He was very vulnerable at that time when i talked to him um he had some health problems he was having some personal problems and he was you know very open about talking about it um yeah, you know, so those kind of interviews are, are pretty, you know, pretty special. And another one, one that I'll always remember is I, I got to interview Lemmy um, ah. shortly before he died, and that was a phone interview. And actually, they they just had me call his house. They just gave me a number.
0: Was he he at, it at the Rainbow? <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, I figured it would be the Rainbow. No, but he it was right down the street, in his apartment, and um, and he just answered the phone. was like, "Hello." And I was like, uh, I'm uh, calling to interview Mr. Kilmeister. He's like, this is him. And he just started. Uh, Long story short, in the middle of the interview, someone came to his door knocking. He goes, hold on, and he had some sort of confrontation with this person, like arguing about something being <laughs> delivered and not being. I was like, what the hell is going on? here? But um, you know, those are human moments, and I'm lucky I, you know, I got to experience them. I've
0: got a, I've got a good, uh, fun factoid for you then, because uh, my cousin Marina. Uh, who lives in Los Angeles uh, from Blackpool originally, um, but moved to Los Angeles in the 70s, and sleeping on her couch uh, simultaneously were Roger Hodgson and Lemmy Kilmister. So there you go. Um, They were roommates. If you can imagine the guy from Supertramp and the guy from Motorhead being roommates, it happened. It really happened.
1: Does
0: she have pictures? Uh, I'll have to ask. She's still in touch with Roger. I know that. Um, but yeah, some of the more interesting interview. I mean, it looks like you've had an extensive, uh, um, you know, uh, life in, in music journalism that I actually wasn't as aware of until I think I think you and I used to occasionally deal with each other when when you were a reporter at the Herald. But um, but uh, the Guar interview, you had one of the last ever interviews. Yeah,
1: yeah. So that that was actually post Herald. I was gone from the Herald at that point. I left the Herald in 2013, and um, I was you know, writing books and doing some freelancing here and there. I was doing some stuff for Esquire with our mutual friend Joe Cohane and um, I was actually, you know, funny before, you know, podcasts were just starting out and there was a lot of streaming radio was just starting out and The Dig, the weekly Dig in Boston about all weekly um, launched Dig Radio and mm. um, I was one of the first shows on there me and uh, an old hardcore guy you might know Dave Tree the band mm-hmm. Tree
0: Oh yeah. And um, so Dave Tree and I had a had a
1: had a show called Hardcore News, and we used to go on and talk news and politics and music, and we used to have different guests call in and stuff. And uh, we had odorous Dave Brockie call in one night, and we used to record these over at the, um, I mean, we sang them live actually over over at the old uh, the old Dig headquarters in the south end of Austin, and um, you know, Dave was he was a little. It was weird. The, the, the interview's up on YouTube. People can find it if they want if They Just Google my name, Dave Brockie. They should be able to find it. But, um, he was weird that night. You know, and, and Dave Tree and I both knew Dave Brockie a little bit. Dave Tree knew him better because they, Tree actually toured with Gua several times. Mm-hmm. And, um, whenever Gua would come to town, you know, me and Dave Tree would go to the show and hang out and, you know, crush beers in the backstage and all that stuff. And, um... You know, Dave Blocky was an awesome guy, hard of gold, like super, super nice, and Dave Tree was very surprised when, you know, the news came that he had OD'd, because he never saw kind of that side of Dave Blocky. Yeah. Um, I don't think it was super well known that Dave was into, you know, harder drugs. I think he was, most people thought he was small, like, it, you know, has been, some weed, you know, but um, obviously that wasn't the case, so. It was an honor to
0: talk to him that night, and that was the last U.S. interview he ever gave. And they went
1: to Japan or Australia, and he gave like one more interview
0: over there. And then he, and he passed away. That's sad. That's sad. And Bridget... That was terrible. Terrible. Oh boy. So, um, any, uh, any other adventures coming up? So yeah, yeah So uh, just you know, we're excited about this. You know, the Lennon book—it's it's selling very well. It, it hit the New York Times
1: bestseller list this, this week, so we're excited about that.
0: I have to say, I looked, I looked yesterday, and you are. In uh, good company. You are just behind Barack Obama, Matthew McConaughey, and Rachel Maddow, and then Dave Wedge. Yeah,
1: I, I saw that. <laughs> well, James Patterson and Dave Wedge. So right. Let's caveat there. No, it's, it's, it's awesome. You know, we, we, we had a great time doing this book, and um, Casey and I are kind of thinking about what we're going to do for our next book on our own. Um, you know, hopefully we'll work with James Patterson again on something else. We're not really sure yet if that will happen, but. We're hopeful that you know we might find something else that would be a good fit and uh, I'm actually starting my next book as we speak it's um, I'm doing one of my own Casey's doing one of his own and we'll do one together next year so uh, the one I'm working on is it's called slam and it's um, it's the story of an of a federal agent who went undercover and um, infiltrated the Pagan motorcycle Club and he's the only federal agent to ever infiltrate that gang that kind of mo was always that we've never been infiltrated in he lived with those guys undercover for two years and rose up to the sergeant at arms. And he had a wife and three little girls at home, and he
0: kind of lived away from for two years. So
1: it's a great story of, you know, an undercover operation and double
0: life and all that sort of stuff. So that sounds awesome. That'll, that'll that'll be out next summer. That's exciting. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna uh, pull the plug on this one, but I, it's been great talking to you, and I'm really looking forward to your upcoming work. And again, I highly highly recommend the the last days of John Lennon. By, uh,
1: thanks, thanks for having me I love the podcast great concept and uh, I'll, I'll have to come on anytime
0: alright great thank you so much I'm Wyndham Lewis on behalf of my brothers Jeremy Sartorian Christian Lewis thank you very much for listening to the Brother 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 podcast many thanks also to our heroic producer Damian Kendall and to Simon Doom for our epic intro music learn more about the pod at brotherpod.com follow us on Twitter and Facebook and it's extremely helpful if you rate and review us on iTunes thanks again
1: for listening